Hi everyone, welcome back to Cloisterbell Podcast. Today we are talking about the Celestial Toymaker. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. So, yes, hello, everybody. Welcome to Cloister Bell. Uh, I'm Rob, and as always, I'm joined with Liam. Hello, Liam. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, good. Um, just had a day out in Newcastle today, because um, my daughter was going to York for the day, so I dropped her off at Central Station, um, and just hung around in town all day when I waited for her to come back. <laughs> oh, okay. So me and my wife went to see The Flash, like I mentioned yesterday mm-hmm. to you on WhatsApp, and just kind of loitered around, went for breakfast at Weatherspoons, went to the cinema, went for lunch at Weatherspoons. <laughs> <laughs> was it the same? Which Weatherspoons was it? Oh, it was the one down towards Central Station, you know, down from the monument. Oh, past, the uh, past Forbidden Planet on the, the Mile corner. Castle. I think that's it's the one. The yeah, Mile yeah. Castle. It's mm-hmm. about it though. Just kind of walked around a bit, did a bit of shopping. Mm-hmm. Not a good one. Nothing exciting. Have you seen the Flash yet? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Oh, uh, that's annoying. I thought I could have a little discussion with you. Um, but it's a bit funny. It's like I was want. I sort of want to see, it, but I don't. Um, because really, I, I'm kind of I'm not being massively into the uh, the superhero movies, and it's it's like right, it's a bit much at this point. And the only thing that was making me vaguely interested in this was the fact that you know Michael Keaton comes back as Batman and and all that. Yeah. Um, but it's not a film that's that made me sort of like have a huge drive to go to the cinema. But I mean, I mean, not not going into spoilers or anything like that. But uh, I mean, what did you think of it? Well. I know the the previous later DC films has been a bit of a mess, mm-hmm. and it's due a reboot, um, either next year or the following year as James Gunn takes over, and we will start from scratch with a new Superman film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, this this is kind of the end phase of this. Um, so you, you're going into it knowing that it's all getting rebooted soon, which is a weird feeling. Um, but that aside, though, I, I was interested to go and see it, of course, for Michael Keaton. Of course, for the continuity to the other films, like that. Come on, let's wrap this up. We haven't had a Flash film yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say the film was like, well, I walked out with my wife, and I just said to her, it was like a fun mess of a film. There was there was some <laughs> right, okay. good, there was some funny bits. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a bit of a mess. It was enjoyable, entertaining, mm-hmm. but a bit peculiar. Right. Okay. okay. As well. Um. And of course, there's fan service like, like you said, Michael Keaton is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't really want to be flooded with lots of spoilers, do you? I'd imagine. No, I don't. No, no, no. Because I, I do prefer. I, I know to it's something to take a slight contradiction with some of our previous podcasts. But yeah, I do. Uh, I, I much prefer going into things um, blind, as it were. Yeah, we, we were sitting in Weatherspoons afterwards, having a pizza, discussing it. Mm. 
And I just blurted out a major spoiler. <laughs> and then I, I, went, I just went, <gasps> and I looked around, expecting the whole of Weatherspoons to go to it would uproar and everyone's kicking off and screaming. <laughs> but no, there was just a load of old people having their faints, and I don't think anyone noticed. No one cares. <laughs> Imagine if everyone was just flipping tables and kicking <laughs> off. Caused a riot. I mean, it's the right location because, as you say, that um, that Weatherspoons is just uh, down from the comic shop Travelling Man and uh, Forbidden Planet. Yes. Well, so, we, yeah. we we went for breakfast there and mm. we were thinking, well, where do you want to go? Where do we want to go today, me and my wife, Alona? Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, oh, well, maybe Travelling Man. And we looked and it wasn't open until 10. And this was at like half eight in the morning. <laughs> so we had, had breakfast and then thought maybe Forbidden Planet, but that was half nine. So we just kind of walked on, went some other places. But later on in the day, I did, I did go to both, looking for a particular Marvel Aliens comic that they didn't have, mm. um, okay. and then walked out disappointed. And then I went over the road to some other geeky shop, which was like a cafe but had loads of empty tables for people to go and play all the all the geeky card games and stuff like that. But yeah. It was an interesting place, but you know, I walked back out again. Is that the is that the the place across the road from Forbidden Planet? Yeah. At, fir- at first, yeah. we thought, "Wow, there's a massive queue for that place," but that was also that was just a bus stop. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look at all yeah, those cause... people queuing up. <laughs> yeah, you can get the thirty eight there. It's a very popular bus. You can. That one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, love um, the thirty eight. Yeah, I've only been in that place once. This yeah. was uh, this was years ago, and. Um, um, I bumped into someone that we used to know from school and I hadn't seen them in years and so I had a bit of a catch up with them and it was like, okay, so where are you going to? I said, well, uh, I'm meeting up with a friend of mine and uh, we're going to a few places but we're going to, I think it's called Geek Retreat or it was then uh, but I, th- if, I think there has been a bit of a name change but it's exactly the same place and run by the same people and what have you. Huh. Um, uh, I said we're going to a few places but we've never been there so we're going to check that out and what he said is uh, he said hold your nose <laughs> I said oh okay that's interesting uh, now, I said a similar thing to my wife before we went into Travelling Man did you? I thought Travelling Man's a Travelling Man's a clean shop I don't well, know it's got a particular smell and I think that um, the attitudes of the people are a bit cold like I went into Forbidden Planet I was talking to the the guy in the door saying hello, um, and then in Traveling Man, I kind of gestured over to say hello, and just neither of them looked up. And then as, oh, I, as okay. I left the shop, neither right. of them looked up. It has been a while <laughs> since I've been in there, but uh, anyway, w- when I went into Geek Retreat all those years ago, because it was, um, it's a sort, of, it is a cross between Traveling Man and Forbidden Planet. It, you know, it's it's that type of place, but they also had a games uh, games night, and it was. You know the stereotype that uh, geeks have, um, and that, you know that they stay in these places for hours and don't wash and that type of thing. It, it, it <laughs> was like that, and it was just like, oh god, it stunk. It was really bad, and it was just like yeah. now the comment of hold your nose makes sense. <laughs> I've never been in since. Yeah, that's all part of the culture, though. It's like we were walking past where the old, well, where the the second to last green. Um, games workshop was because it used to be around the corner at the top of the newgate center oh yes which was that small little shop Mm -hmm. small dark sweaty shop and that's that was 
that was part of what it was like. Hmm. And then it moved around the corner and had windows on either side and it was all clean and lit. And I thought, you know what, this has just ruined it. <laughs> I know what you mean. In a funny, in an odd sort of way, I feel a bit like that with Forbidden Planet. I said that as well the day we went down to the basement. And do you remember the basement of Forbidden Planet? It was dark, it was dusty. There'd be these yeah, hairy, yeah, sort of like... hairy men running the place and <laughs> <laughs> all these old things. And now it's just clean. It's like the London, London Forbidden Planet or something. It's like all white and too too much light. Fresh yeah, air. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. It is exactly like the one because uh, I've got a I've got a, a friend of mine and he's he 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 he's banging to his comics. So um, when we went to London, this was years ago, and uh, it was like a, there was a group of us, and he was there. And it was we had to go to Forbidden Planet, and this was before they they modernised the one up here in Newcastle, and it was just like wow, wow it's 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 big, it's light, it's airy. It's Please. nice, um, but yeah, the the one that we had was it was it was like pokey. It was dark. Yeah, there was hardly any light. It was just uh, dirty carpet. old carpet. <laughs> yeah. it, the magic's the gone now. Rickety old old stairs, you know, uh, very precarious going down them. Bloody health and safety hazard, and the basement was even more small and claustrophobic with books just crammed in. It was perfect, yeah. Yeah, it was perfect. And now they moved slightly down to... Uh, uh, it used to be a bank, that was it. I, f- I think it was... I think it used to be a Halifax bank, bank or something. Right, okay. So they moved into the into what used to be a bank, so much more space. And as you say, um, lights, windows, airy, clean. Just going, this isn't suitable for this sort of place. It's weird. Um, well. So they're, they're trying to be part of normal <laughs> society. No, so it doesn't fit. you are not normal. Yeah. And I don't say that disparagingly. <laughs> we're Doctor Who fans. <laughs> you know, we're not normal either. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, well, yeah, we went into that shop over the road. There was like one woman sat at a table. There was lo- like dozens of tables and she was the only person in there. But no, there was no like, uh, yeah, there was no fun going <laughs> on there. <laughs> Need to go to one of these sweaty game nights. No, 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 no. Just no. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Maybe we should. Maybe it's an awful lot of fun. But um, like whenever anyone suggests sort of, you know, um, game nights or something like that, um, it's always these. And there's nothing wrong with them because they, they do sound interesting. But all these uh, um, random board games. And I'm just going. Have you not got Trivial Pursuit? <laughs> Monopoly, a bit of chess, um, you know something that I, at least I know the rules to. Yeah. Did you um, to actually talking about board games? Did you know that there was a uh, this was in the late eighties that there was a Doctor Who board game. Was there? Is this yeah. a Dalek one? No, no, no. It was called Doctor Who: Battle of the Universe. I only know this because um, my parents had gone to a car boot sale and they came back and they'd seen this and uh, they bought it for me. Had it for years. So sadly, I don't think I have it anymore. And um, so, all right, fantastic. And it was, it had this board game and it had uh, two rings on it and it came with all these cards and they were nicely illustrated and had, uh, lo- you know, so you had cards of all the different doctors 
uh, all the different villains, the Daleks, the Cybermen, the Master. They even had the Marshman from Full Circle in there. That it was just all sorts. Um, and I never played it because, in terms of the rules, it was one of the most complicated games. I was just, I just couldn't get my head around the rules and how you were supposed to play, how you were supposed to play this thing. But I would get it out regular because I thought that the artwork for it was really rather nice. So I appreciated from an from an aesthetic point of view. In terms of how to play it, no idea. Just, <laughs> no clue. Yeah, no clue. I thought you were going to say no one would play with you. It's a bit sad. But then that reminded <laughs> me of me because, like, I remember I'd get games like, like in The Loft, for example, I've got this Star Trek The Next Generation Monop- Monopoly. Hmm. And I must have got it in the mid-90s. Never been played with because no one wants to play it. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that is sad. Oh, D- don't say, oh you mean, just laugh. Just don't. don't, don't, don't oh, <laughs> so funny, Rob. It's not at all tragic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when I'd have time for um, a hobby. I guess this is a hobby. But referring to the podcast. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't think I'd have time for a. Um, yeah, yeah, you were talking to the po- referring to the podcast. It's like <laughs> talking to you, Liam, is a hobby. Is it? Jeez, okay. <laughs> yeah, I used to. Um, I tried to get back into the Warhammer in the early two thousands. Okay, spent quite a bit of money on that and time, and then it just kind of faded out because I was painting all the models, but like dry brushing them like perfectly, which would take so long and ruin so many brushes. <laughs> it was, uh, didn't have time. Yeah, I, I remember. Um... I tried to get into it, and I was just like, I couldn't get it from the, I couldn't get into it from the, from the game's perspective. Although I did play it a couple of times, but I quite liked that, you know, you you're getting the models, and I liked, you know, the detail and getting the, the painting. So I can kind of get the, um, the appeal of it from that point of view. It was expensive though. I mean, yeah, I mean, at the, you know, at the time, you know, you would get these, um, you would get these starter boxes. Uh, which were the cheapest, and I think they were five, six pounds. Which now we would go, yeah, okay, that's really cheap. But at the time, especially when you're kid, you know, on pocket money, that was a bit that you know that was expensive for for what it was. Matt from uh, neither the time nor the space plays a lot of Warhammer with, uh, oh, does he? with friends and stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, when he was up here, we went we went into Granger Games. I mean, yeah, my Granger Games. I used to work there. I mean, Games Workshop. <laughs> yeah, is it called? Um, it's just called. Is it just called Warhammer now? It is. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I've lost touch with it. I used to love it back in the day. Like in the late 90s, every year, they used to have a thing called Games Day. Hmm. Um, so you'd get your tickets. I think they were about £35. Wow. And okay. the, the, co- the coach ticket was £20 or something or £15 on top of that. So you'd go to Games Workshop early in the morning. Like, I don't know, it was like four in the morning or something, get on the coach, um, which was really fun. And. Um, each each store would have there'd be a standard bearer, someone would be holding a big Newcastle uh, placard, and we'd go down on the coach, and it would be at the Birmingham National Arena, um, National Indoor Arena, right, which okay. I think is gone now okay. and been replaced. But it was the it's the same arena that they like film Gladiators in. Oh, right, in, okay. In, in the nineties, so mm. you'd be going around at the beat. But the atmosphere when you walk in. You'd go in the door and you'd be coming in the top end of the stadium looking down with the hundreds of thousands of seats around. Mm. And then the base of the stadium was 
so many tables uh, in the centre. There'd be people playing games. <laughs> Hundreds of people. Uh, the atmosphere was amazing um, and all the music. But there'd be um, lots of um, stalls because this was like an official event. So you could get early stuff there. You get free stuff, exclusive stuff. You get to speak to the designers. You could enter paint competitions um, and playing competitions as well. And there was like the these golden demon awards where you'd win like a um this golden demon statue or you'd win the Slayer sword. It was a massive big sword. Um but it was a it was a, a full day and it was mm. um I, I used to love that. But I used to uh, I used to go every year in the late nineties, early two thousands. Wow, that just sounded like it was a really impressive event actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Shall we get on with the episode? Uh so today we're talking about the Celestial Toymaker. And I thought we'd pick this because we're seeming inclined to think that Neil Patrick Harris in the 60th may be playing the Celestial Time Maker. And you probably, you, you firmly believe that, don't you? It's quite likely. I think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess it makes sense that we'll do this as a little bit of a, um, a prelude to the 60th. So, um, firstly, I, I'm wondering about your memories of the story, which are probably um similar to my experiences i'm guessing with the hartnell years vhs yes so uh memories centered around episode four so for listeners who don't know this is one of those largely missing stories so it's a four-part story with episodes one two and three missing um we only have the audio for those but we can watch episode four and yeah that was available on the hartnell years VHS and yeah my memories of it were always enjoying that episode years ago I did um, it, it's no longer online but years ago I did have a blog which was me reviewing all the Doctor Who stories and I was watching the series in order so I have listened to the whole story once before but I couldn't remember a thing about it my memories are entirely focused on the fourth episode Mm-hmm. I did have a vague uh, memory of um, the character Dodo uh, looking into a television screen and seeing the day her her, her mother died. That always stuck with me because I thought that was creepy. And I know that it was you know, the story centred around games, but I couldn't remember an awful lot about it. Um, <laughs> and obviously we'll get into it, Rob, but listening to the story again, I'm not surprised. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah our memories of episode 4 from the VHS we have Sylvester McCoy doing these interlinking bits where yes. he'll be um, explaining the nature of the lost stories um, and what's been happening to give you a little bit of a recap and then you go into episode 4 um, so episode 4 it, fe- it, it definitely felt like the conclusion to some really clever story full of these trials and tests and games with this big intellect that is the Celestial Time Maker. Yeah. Um, now, I, like you, I can't remember much of my original listen on CD. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Just bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. So revisiting now, I guess it was a bit um, a bit underwhelming in that respect. Yeah, and i got to say, I was, I was very, <laughs> I was very surprised at that. Um, uh, and I even when I was listening to, I think it was episode three, 
uh, I text you, Rob, <laughs> and you, and you, uh, I, I don't think I mentioned which episode I was listening to. I just made a comment of just my my God, this is dull. And you went, oh, is it is it the um, is it the episode with, in the, the dance floor? The dance yeah. floor. And I went, yes, that's the one. Um, but yeah, right. It's I always this was a story that I when I was a kid I always wanted to see the full thing because of the fourth episode. Because as you said, Rob, it did feel like it was this peculiar, fun, in, intriguing episode, a, a story with this final episode with uh with the, you know these these odd characters and this um with a celestial toy maker being um surrounded by sort of like ch- childlike games but quite into, but he was creepy and intelligent and all the rest of it and I always thought oh this must be the whole thing must be like a really really interesting intriguing <laughs> mid to late 60s bonkers thing like I don't know the Hartnell equivalent of what they would later do with the mind robber. If only they they just lost the audios as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just yeah. You know what? Maybe maybe they weren't wiped. Maybe this was all intentional. Let's <laughs> let's get all the crap ones, put them in a skip, and just say, <laughs> say we wiped them. <laughs> Keep the good ones. So before we jump ahead too much, should we do our usual bit? About the plot in Cast and Crew. Yes. So, the plot of today's story, um, the travellers arrive in a strange domain preceded over by the Celestial Toymaker, an enigmatic immortal entity who forces them to play a series of games, failure at which will render them his playthings for all eternity. So, in this story, which is part of season... Three, uh, we have Peter Purvis, uh, Stephen, Jackie Lane as Dodo, Michael Goff as the toy maker. Um, do you recognize him from anywhere in particular? Uh, of course, Ark of Infinity. Uh, what about Batman? Uh no no any but yes uh very first thing I ever saw him in was Batman yes he played Alfred in um the first four so Batman, Batman I was gonna say the turns. first two my mind had just wiped the other two out no funnily enough I was just about to say that but I went oh no hang on wait a second no he was in all four uh so oh Batman god yeah my, I just Batman and Robin as well blotted out the last two it's just all cheesy and that's the one where my um George Clooney has nipples. I'm pretty sure Val Kilmer had nipples too, but um, George Clooney um, gets the blame for that. Yeah, I think they were introduced in uh, Batman Forever, but I think that is just just regarded as a um, as a much better film. Funnily enough, recently everyone's been talking about this, uh, and this has been known for a while. That, uh, but it seems to get more traction that uh, Joel Schumacher had a diff- originally a different cut of the film, which is a bit more darker. Uh, and every so every, and I'm only talking about a couple of weeks ago, Rob. So, so semi jokingly, everyone's now talking about that they want the Joel Schumacher cut of Batman and Forever. Mm. Yeah, and sadly, he's no longer with us. Mm. Um, do you think that's a thing that exists somewhere? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I I have there are deleted scenes. 
so Arkham Asylum was going to be a bit more involved in the film, and there were a couple of more scenes and things like that, which... Yeah, there is like a big scene of Val Kilmer with a giant bat in his mind. Yeah, yeah. So there's a few things like that. But I actually think, I mean, I'm, I do much prefer Batman and Batman Returns. They, they are my favourite. But I do like Batman Forever, actually. And I think yeah. people forget that that was a huge success when it came out. It was, oh, know, yeah. It was and, you know, as kids, we're not stupid. We can, we can see the difference in tone and how it fails in respect to the previous two but you rec- you still recognize whether you know something is of good quality because i remember you know every you know batman forever was was a huge huge hit everyone liked it um it was you know everyone seemed to have um like the poster um the other rob rob um i know he had the, the batman forever poster and then there was the whole you know the, um seal the singer he had the song kiss from a rose uh which was i think he did been a previously released single but it'd been uh redone for batman forever but that that was a really good song and that was all over the place when it came to batman and, and robin it never seemed to get any traction at all i've got no i have got no mm. memories of that um, of course i remember when it came out i had the vhs i probably watched it a billion times but not as much as batman forever mm-hmm. this is like a a wave of toys for Batman and Robin, um, like micro machines or like you know, like a little box like Mighty Max or Polly Pocket kind of size. Um, and I had all the figures and uh, for that, but I, I, you know, what I know I'm remembering, I had two of them for Batman Forever, uh, and they opened up like a Mighty Max thing and had little figures in the um. Mighty Max, blimey. Yeah. That takes me out yeah, of it. I don't know if you remember, because I took the... I actually remember t- taking them to Kielder when we went. Oh, did you? And then like, it ended up getting passed around the coach. No, I don't... I wonder if you got a memory which, of that. Which, which, which one was it? Do you remember? Which, which one the was The Mighty Max that you shared around. Oh, no, this uh, this was actually the... It was the Batman Forever ones. Oh, right, okay. I ended up passing around. Yeah, I remember I, I did have a few Mighty Max. Do you remember they did they did do a giant one? But I, I had a few. There was like a rat one and a, a cybernetic skull. And oh, there was a fi- there was like a, a zombie hand. It was like a pointing finger. As well. I don't I remember that. that. So for anyone who's listening and has no idea what we're talking about, you had these. These were sort of like Polly Pockets, but for boys. Um, is probably the only way to, to, <laughs> I can describe it. And yeah, they had different ones. So the ones I had, Rob, there was one which uh, was a skull, and you would open that up, and that was like Frankenstein's laboratory. I had that. What my favorite yeah. one was a coil. It looked like a coiled snake. This snake. Yeah, I remember you open that. that up, and that was like inside a mummy's tomb. That was my favorite because there were a few like hidden compartments and things like that uh in it so i thought that was nice. cool um and then there was a it came with this sort of chain well it wasn't like a chain it was uh, it was supposed to be rope but you connected it from the top to the bottom and you could get mighty max sliding down from the one top of the tomb down to the other oh we were easily pleased Th- there was one that was like an uh, a nice cave um it was probably one or two others that i had but um <clears throat> ah. Yeah, That's cool. in terms of the Batman toys, though, I had uh, mine were from the first two films. So I remember having the Batmobile from the first Batman movie, which was just oh, you're gonna you're gonna be cross. I uh, I threw out my Michael Keaton Batmobile last week. <gasps> you get why did you do that? 
It was a right. bit broken. And you know what? Me and my wife were having to clear out, and I'm pulling out this A-team van from the, the 60s. What am I saying? From the 80s. <laughs> Um, with with the figures, and I'm like, oh, what am I going to do with this? Is it worth anything? And then pulling out like the um, the Michael Keaton Batmobile, which was a bit a bit smashed up and missing oh, a few okay. bits. And I thought, oh, I'll just throw it out. But yes, I had the Michael mm-hmm. Keaton Batmobile. I had the I had his plane. Was it the Batwing, mm-hmm. Nightwing thing? I had a few figures from that time. I definitely had the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman. Where you would pull her arm back and it would whip forward. Yes, I remember that. I was going to mention that the fact that you had, yeah. uh, <laughs> you had a kids toy people. Well, I had the penguin oh. as well. I had the penguin as well. Yes, I had the penguin as well. as well. Uh, but with his but umbrella, the, the Catwoman thing. Yeah. So if anyone's seen Batman Returns, this was a kids toy. So you had the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman and all her kinky leathery glory, and it came with a whip. Yep. So you it came with. Um, so you put the whip in her hand, and as you said, Rob, it had this whip back action. <laughs> Jeez, the hell! Yeah. Fuck, that was a kid's toy. Is just insane. Um, yeah, I remember also that uh, I had a Joker, and it ca- it came with this thing where um, it, a, a small yellow um, bottle, if you like, and you would fill that with water, and you would connect that to a tube, insert it into the back of Joker, and squeeze it, and water would come out of the flower on his lapel at the front. Oh, fun. Yeah. Wait, you had, I seem to remember, you had the Batmobile from the animated series, didn't you? Crap, I completely forgot I had that as well. Yes, I had. Sure uh, you, yeah, br- I just... you brought that in in year four or something. You brought, you brought it in with your next generation teleporter. <laughs> <laughs> Must have, yeah, because I had that as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which, um... yeah, that was great because that was a battery operated thing. So you would put the. Because it was all sort of enclosed, so you would put the toys in, and there would be like a mirror at the front, and it had this controller, and you would slowly fade it up, and it came with a sound effect as well, and it looked like they were disappearing off the show. Yeah. If no one knows what this is, please look it up, because they just don't make toys like this anymore. No, they don't. I'll ever be really chuffed with that. Uh, yes, you're right, because my favourite uh, was the, the Keaton Batmobile, but... Um, but I did also like the the one from the animated series. Rob, I completely forgot I had that. Yeah, I probably took that one to school because I thought it was a cool toy. But I didn't want to take like my ultimate favorite one <laughs> in case something happened to it. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I had a few varieties of the Batman figures from the early to mid nineties. It was probably I I don't know if it was part of like the the Keaton film range, but it definitely looked like him, and it was released at the same time, and it was like all these quirky little varieties. I had like, uh, I mean like a yellow wetsuit. So it was like, imagine Batman super yellow. And he had this kind of motorized water ski thing with missiles in the front. That was pretty cool. All right. Okay. And I had another one where he had, I think some kind of purple sonar weapon and he had this silver suit. Yeah, I remember there were, there were some odd v- yeah. variety of ones. I remember there was one that was, he, he sort of like had a white suit. Mm. Um, I think the idea was that, you know, he'd be on some sort of Arctic adventure. Um, but I'm sure that one glowed in right. the dark as well. Oh. I did have a Robin figure in the very in the early 90s as well. It would be, is it, is it Burt Ward? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. from the um, 
the 1960s TV show. Um, mm. And, you know, all these figures that had the fabric capes and with little metal loops that would go around the necks. And, but Robin's arm, you would lift it all the way up over his head, it would click, and then he'd press a button on his back and he would do a karate chop. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, so we're, 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 I swear we're not deflecting and avoiding the Celestial Toymaker. But oh, we're, yes, we're, we are. We're, we're, <laughs> we're like 10% way through the cast and crew now. So, yes, the toy maker was, of course, played by Alfred himself, Michael Goff. Um, um, it may be like Vincent van Gogh. Maybe in America, you call him Michael Go. Maybe <laughs> in the Netherlands, you call him Michael Koch. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, there's many ways to pronounce it, I'm sure. Um, so, Joey the Cat, Clown, King of Hearts, and Sergeant Rug was played by Campbell Singer. Clara the Clown, Queen of Hearts, Mrs. Wiggs was played by Carmen Silvera. And Cyril, Kitchen Boy, Neighbor of Hearts, Peter Stevens, Joker, Reg Lever. Uh, dancers, Beryl Braham and Harrison Delia Linden. And Doctor Who's Hand was uncredited, but played by Albert Ward. No, there you go. So let's have a quick breakdown of episode one of four. So this is called the Celestial Toy Room. So the Doctor, Dodo and Stephen are on board the TARDIS following their previous adventure. And um, Dodo has raided the TARDIS wardrobe for a trendy new dress. And, you know, all of a sudden the Doctor vanishes and he can only be heard by his friends. Um, so he declares like this is some sort of attack. Okay, so the TARDIS arrives in an empty room and the scanner is looking outside um, and the scanner is showing nothing. And the doctor thinks, well, it's not malfunctioning. It's 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 just showing white or something like that. So the doctor is determined to go outside and face up to whatever's out there. So they go outside and they meet the celestial toy maker, an adversary of the doctor who he's clearly met before but not on screen. So they must have had this long-running battle going on. I know the toy maker does at some point say, or rather the doctor says, the last time he was here, he quickly turned around and left. So I don't know if it's been one previous meeting or, or, or multiple. The The toy maker uh, we meet and he picks up some toy clowns from the Victorian doll's house, which is quite a big elaborate miniature house behind him and um he picks up these clowns to face off with um Stephen and Dodo which they uh, d- the dolls kind of grow into into people as the team go outside they uh the doctor is like tangible again because he was made invisible and um the doctor does think his surroundings look somewhat familiar oh this is where they see the the TV screen that you mentioned Liam so, yeah, the see a screen. I'm, I'm guessing this screen. Do you think it's uh, is it on the wall or is it in the chest of this robot? It's in the chest of the robot. It's in the chest of the robot. So there's this big robot there with a TV screen. Stephen sees himself on the planet Kemble, which is from an earlier story in this season, I believe, where I'm from Dalek's Master Plan. Uh, then again in Paris, and Dodo would later see herself on the day her mother died. 
so from this, the Doctor concludes that they're in the world of the Celestial Toymaker. And um, he says he's a power for evil who manipulates people and turns them into his playthings. Mm. It's a bit ominous. In place of the TARDIS stands the Toymaker now. He says he's been waiting for the Doctor for a long time. And so they clearly have this uh, history between them. Uh, do you think it's a good way to present uh, a character with a, a, a pre-existing history between them? Yes, it, it it's sort of uh, it's a bit intriguing. It's a bit mysterious. I think it works, especially during this period of the show. I think it works much more effectively because um, William Hartnell's Doctor is you know still very mysterious. This is a point of the show where we don't know he's a Time Lord from the Planet Gallifrey and all the rest of it. Sometimes it obviously depends on how it's done. Sometimes it could come across as a bit lazy, but I think on this occasion, given the type of character that the Toy Maker is, it just adds a whole sort of intrigue and, and mystery about it and it does make you think oh i wonder what i wonder what that adventure was and it does sort of fire off the imagination in a uh, in a particular way yeah i do think um the f- these first moments of of episode one are quite effective they do it is a good you know it does establish the story uh quite well you know um we're in this the safety, supposed safety of the TARDIS, um, but the Doctor becomes invisible. There's a reference to the previous adventure, the Ark, about the Refusions. And they were invisible in that story, so that's why they're going, is it something to do with them? But the Doctor, being aware, no, there's something else going on here. They're in this strange domain. It's the domain of the Toymaker. And I like this idea of, of this um, powerful being but he's nefarious and there's that odd link to sort of um edwardiana sort of childhood if you like with with the type of toys and everything like that it, that in itself already is it's establishing establishing a sort of mood and a tone which i really rather like and being uh, a British science fiction television series, it, or, it already has these sort of connotations. I think a lot of people would automatically be thinking of the likes of, you know, Lewis Carroll, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland type thing. And that's, it, it already, it, 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 it's it got a lot of promise with all these, uh, you know, with that sort of cultural connotation um, and the tone and feel that this sort of thing could, could do. Um, it's just a shame that the story doesn't go in that direction. But I think, you know, th- these opening moments of the story um, are very effective. But it isn't just tied into the past. So you've got these uh, these ro- these robots that look like 1950s uh, toy robots, you know, with the screen. And the fact that that it taps into the memories of whoever's viewing it, I think, is a, is a nice idea. And the fact that it, you know, with Dodo, it triggers off you know it, it triggers off negative memories oh, right, um, yeah. so you know so, and i think this is probably the reasons why it's it like this is one element of the story which always resonated with me because it's like yeah that is that is really creepy and it says a, an awful lot about the, the world that they're in it says an awful lot about the toy maker that she's seeing the day her mother died and the doctor's saying do not look at it and you know the, the toy maker says oh you're no fun so this is his idea of fun mentally manipulating people um so yeah there's an awful lot of promise within now it's you know the first i think this is like the first 10 minutes of episode one uh, i think it's done i think it's done well 
gets off to a good start. And they, um, they're separated from the TARDIS as well because they're presented with um, hundreds of TARDISes, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't, know, I don't know if that was something that was on screen or if it was something that was on the, the television screen in the robot. But um, I yeah, think you know, I, I th- yeah, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, so um, they kind of um, separated from the TARDIS, so they've kind of got to they've got to get on with things now in order to escape. So Stephen and Dodo are taken to a room where um, they face off with two clowns, Joey hmm. and Clara. Um, spelled C L A R A. Um, guessing she's not a Clara. <laughs> she could be. <laughs> she could be. But no, I don't think she is now. Yeah. <clears throat> I did write on my notes, is she a Clara? <laughs> <laughs> um so Dodo is um squirted with water from a bunch of flowers. Mm. Um at some point. So the time maker explains that they have to win all the games before the doctor does. And um, they'll win the TARDIS back, um, which may or may not be the real one. We'll see. And um, if they lose, they'll stay there as his guests. So Stephen agrees to play. Um, and then Clara explains the first game, which is Blind Man's Buff. Or she says, mm-hmm. Blind Man's Buff, um, in an annoying <laughs> voice. So is is this where that, the episode that was actually a really good it? impression, Rob? That she does sound like that, yeah. Yeah, does the episode go downhill now, or is it still riveting stuff? Do you think? No, it goes downhill. Mm-hmm. The I think all that potential, and it still has potential. <laughs> yeah. But at this point, it's just it it just wanes. Now this is the thing as well. It could be the case that uh, if this story were rediscovered. And we could actually watch these because I think one thing is very clear. Um, you know, obviously, I mean, obviously, it's these were television programs. It's a visual medium, but um, certain missing stories, um, funnily enough, work as audio still. Marco Polo is a very good example of that. Yeah. Obviously, you still need the linking narration, but you still get some sense of the story. Uh, with this, there are long gaps. Uh, <laughs> And it could be the case that if we were watching this, you'd go, right, the stories, the, um, these episodes are are somewhat better than I expect because I'm able to see what, you know, what's going on. But in terms of how the story's scripted, yeah, it, it, it goes downhill from, from this point on. Yeah, so, I, w- I would agree. But that is a really good point because when I was listening to the audios, hmm. uh, I did listen to the audio of episode four. And then the following day, I put the DVD on. And yeah. it was a lot better because those long pauses, there's body language going on and other things, mm-hmm. um, which uh, makes it more entertaining, there's more yeah. substance and, to the episode. Yeah, and funny enough, I did uh, I did exactly the same thing, Rob. So the, the Doctor's playing his own game, the Trilogic game, and the fact that you know you got Peter Purvis uh, talking about which numbers are on which part of uh, of the the table just going yeah you're really struggling to tell us what's going on mm. um and I, yeah and then so when you watch the 
I think if you were just listening to that, you, you wouldn't think really much and go, this is really dry. But of course, when you're watching it, uh, it is a much better experience. Definitely. So I think there is a, there is an element of, of that. I don't, th- I don't think it is... I mean, I'm not saying that if the story were rediscovered, it would be so hugely uh, re-evaluated as to shoot up in people's <laughs> expectations. But... Um, I think you know there's something about it. it probably would be a little bit of a <laughs> somewhat of an improvement. Hopefully, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll explain to the listeners what the Doctor's up to at this point, because the Doctor um, is facing off with the Toy Maker while Stephen and Dodo are playing these these um, subsequent games. So the Doctor needs to play the trilogy game, and he ha- it basically there's three sides to this board. And he has, is it one numbered pyramid? And they have to sequentially move move it back and forward to move the whole pyramid, but they can't place larger pieces onto smaller pieces. Yes, so you've got uh, you've got a pyramid which is complete. I think it's made of of, of nine sections, um, and that's on panel A. And what you have to do is get the pyramid. In the you know uh, completely rebuilt on panel C, so you've got to move one piece at a time, and a larger piece cannot be on a smaller piece, and you've got to do all this within one thousand and twenty three moves. Yeah, and you've got to, and during the course of the game, you cannot make a single mistake. So, um, in the game room with Stephen um, and Dodo, the Doctor sends a warning um, over the over the speaker. Um, before he's cut off, so as his punishment, the doctor is made intangible again. So you only ha- you can only play with one hand at this point. So he's just kind of floating hand, and this is where um, I guess we get a stand-in for the doctor, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier. Do you know the reason for not having William Hartnell in the story as much? Because um, he's made invisible, and then he's also made um, dumb as the or mute as the Celestial Time Maker says. <laughs> I think it was brought on by a couple of things. Uh, one, I think uh, the, it was part of the production schedule for William Hartnell to have uh, a bit of a break at this point. So I think that's part of it. But I know William Hartnell's health was really starting to take an effect at, at this point. And actually, they were looking at replacing him round about this time. Right. There was an idea that this would have been William Hartnell's final story. Okay. Um... The idea was he would become invisible and then when he would be made visible at the end of the story, then he would be played by somebody else. Interesting. Okay. Um, so it wouldn't have been a regeneration as, as we as we would know it now through the Tenth Planet, but that was, that was the idea that was originally um, suggested at the time. Why that was made, why they changed the mind in the way that they did uh i'm not sure uh, i don't know why but um i mean i'm pleased i'm pleased they didn't go along with that but uh but yeah they were starting to look at replacing william hartnell at this point mm. that would have um seriously changed the doctor who law going forward yeah yeah ma- yeah massively um but the fact that they i mean william hartnell was i mean it was said it before when we were reviewing uh, the daleks master plan I think that was his peak of playing the Doctor. And he's never quite as good as he once was. But that isn't to say that he doesn't 
that isn't to say that it's a complete and utter disaster. It's um, he still gives very good performances. Um, you know, you had the arc, which is the previous story to this one. I still think that's good. The gunfighters is an awful lot of fun, which is the subsequent yeah. story. Um, you know, so that you know, there's the, the still good stories and there's still good uh, performances from William Hartnell. Um, I think him leaving. I, th- I think it's only is what. Th- uh, it's only a handful of stories after this one that he's still the Doctor, but I'm pleased that for whatever reason with the the production changes that we we get these few stories and he he regenerates at the end of the Tenth Planet. So yeah, fortunate for that. Yeah, yeah. So Stephen and Dodo are playing this first game, and in it they have to pass obstacles blindfolded, taking turns with um, the clown Joey until someone loses. And in this game, they're blindfolded and the other player has to go into a booth, a glass booth. And the only way of communicating with the player is by sounding a buzzer, I believe. Mm-hmm. And wasn't it where like one buzzer for left, two for right. And there was a few other instructions possibly. And um, so yeah. that, that's the only way, way of communicating. Yeah, and as a and listen to this in audio, as you say, you've got uh, you've got you've got these two clowns. One is thankfully mute; the other one is speaking in this high pitched, irritating tone, so, um, which you give a really good impression of earlier. And then you've got this 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 buzzer thing going. Uh, 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 uh. And over that, we've got Peter Purvis talking really fast, trying to explain what the hell's going on. Yeah, and it's just like oh God, it's not the greatest listening experience ever. Um. Mm. So again, it's sort of like watching it maybe five hours, but listening to all this, just going, someone talking like this. Uh, 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 uh. It's just, oh, for God's sake, this, yeah. please make it end. Yeah. Um, at one point, Stephen's hitting his turn, but Joey nudges a stepping stone out of place. Yeah. And he can't hear Dodo's warnings from inside the booth. And then at some point, Stephen's in this final part, like this plastic tube, and Joey moves the end of the tube <laughs> in a U-turn, uh, which uh, turns Stephen around to throw him off. Of course, Stephen's furious, and then Dodo notices that Joey has had a bit of a dodgy blindfold on, so Joey was able to see this whole time. Mm. And um, eventually, Joey's wearing a proper blindfold, and... He's not. He's not as funny anymore. <laughs> and then eventually he just falls, and uh, they win. And so Stephen and Dodo are presented with a fake TARDIS with a riddle inside, and they proceed through the door. And Dodo takes one final look back and sees Joey and Clara have turned back into wooden dolls, and um, which goes back into the whole creepy Victorian doll kind of element of it. And so that's the first episode. And then we go in episode two, which is the Hall of Dolls. So Dodo and Stephen open the door and enter the first of two chair rooms. And basically, there's one room which contains three thrones. And then there's a a second room down the corridor which contains four chairs. And... I can't remember specifically what the riddle was, but it was to do with chairs. And of course, the doctor sends them another warning 
over the monitor and he says, it's chair number. And and as a consequence, this is where the doctor loses his voice. And a condition of that is he has no voice until the second last or the final move of, of the trilogic game. So at this point, the doctor has just been written out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Stephen and Dodo meet some playing cards. We have the Hart family. So we have the king played by the previous actor who played Joey the Clown. We have mm-hmm. the Queen, who previously played Clara. Uh, we have a Joker. And we have the Knave of Hearts, who is a guy called Cyril, who we'll get to know further on down the line. And now, so as as the King and the Queen are kind of discussing all this, Stephen and Dodo leave and go to the second room which contains the four other numbered chairs. And it also contains four TARDIS-shaped cupboards. Um, I believe from like the production photos that we've seen, these cupboards were white. Is that from mm-hmm. this scene in particular, do you think? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. And in the first of the three, they find seven dolls. And then um, I think the fourth one... Uh, might be locked, if I'm remembering correctly. As the king and queen come to the second room and catch up with Stephen and Dodo, they've pulled out four of the dolls, but Stephen wants to keep the fact that there's three of the dolls to themselves. So the king and the queen believe that themselves and Stephen and Dodo each have one doll each to use in this trial. And this is where we get the bits where Stephen gets quite frustrated with Dodo. (laughs) And he's not the only one. Yeah. So he's like, will you shut up? Stop talking about those dolls. Um, you know, and she's like, but but there's three dolls in there. <sighs> she's not very bright in this story. No. Uh, like at, at one point I'm sure she's like she is taking it seriously and then she's just not. Yeah, there's there's this really odd yeah. She seems to be uh I think as a character well written in the first episode and then from this point on she's just incredibly naive and just unbelievably naive it just gets worse oh yeah it, it does get worse and it's just stupid now i like the character of dodo you know the way that she's uh, introduced into the series and she's very good in the arc i think this is only i think this is only her second story mm. um she isn't in that many but um she was a good uh, character, and Jackie Lane played the part, you know, really well. But for some reason, the way that she's written in this story just does the character no. Well, I actually think it's completely out of character, to be, to be honest. Yeah. And Stephen is the one who's really on the ball, recognizes the, the the danger that they're in, and that the fact that you know that they can't, you know, they've got to be very cagey about this. But Dodo's just like, yeah, we can openly discuss our plans with everything. Everyone can be trusted. And it's like, oh, you stupid. You know, um, yeah, I don't know if they were trying to go for like an aspect of her. Like in contrast with the villains of this story, who are not very nice. Hmm. She's more more human and compassionate and fair. I don't know if that's like qualities they were trying to convey. or well, Probably, but... It just comes they across do. as naivety. Yeah, it does. I, th- I think. Yeah, I think, uh, Rob. You, yeah, I think that's probably what they were wanting to do. But the way in which it was written is just—it doesn't sell yeah. that at all. 
she does come across as naive and the fact that you know you've actually got a character within the story in this case Stephen, actually just like constantly pointing it out and she never seems to learn you know and she she nearly dies in this episode she's almost frozen to death i'm you know so it's like freezing so cold look rob she probably played it really well right okay (laughs) give us some slack we can't see it but yeah um she yeah that could have been a bit of a turning point in the story you know from someone who's like now right okay i'm with you Stephen. but she doesn't (laughs) doesn't doesn't learn at all so yeah it's uh i think that that's what makes it even more frustrating um you know it could be seen in the way that you were talking about as as that contrast um and enjoying the childlike element of the, the games that they're playing but then realizing you know you, they could die at any moment just going right okay this this isn't this isn't fair and this is dangerous yeah but yeah it um it <laughs> she doesn't learn she doesn't. at all and no. th- this particular um challenge should have been a learning curve for her because you know there's a lot of dangers here the characters have presumed that in this trial they've cor- well they've correctly guessed that maybe they need to test these chairs out with the dolls so Stephen and Dodo go back to the first room while the king and queen stay in the second room and they try out one of the dolls in one of the chairs and they sit the doll down and it gets clamped with these metal clamps into the chair and I don't know if it's electrocuted or buzzed or something but clearly that wasn't it wasn't a winning chair (laughs) (laughs) no and Stephen and Dodo also put a doll on the chair and this other doll is electrocuted Stephen throws a doll on the chair and a a blade cuts it in two Um, so it's getting pretty deadly the king throws another doll on a chair and it just fades away (laughs) And then they return to room one. So Dodo sneaks off to get these three other dolls. But this cupboard's locked, so they can't use them. Um, So they've got no more dolls to try out on these chairs. So what do they do? Dodo sits down. And this is the scene you were talking about. She sits down, she's like, help me. I'm free. Zing. Um, and then, you know, Stephen manages to pull her up. Fortunately, she wasn't in the guillotine chair. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, you get her about that. I mean, she's lucky not to be dead as a dodo. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe the freezing damaged our brain. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rob, yeah, fair, yeah, that's exactly what, yeah. It's the only thing Freeze that makes Dodo. sense. Yeah. Dodo's were stupid and naive. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's a parallel because Dodo's lived on this island from what I remember. Mm. And I wasn't there. It's just like a fact. <laughs> um, but Dodo's were notorious for trusting people because there was no predators where they lived. Yeah. Um, and because they were so trusting, they got themselves killed. So maybe yeah, maybe there's um maybe there's a conscious like parallel between her and these creatures. <laughs> right <in. laughs> Naively going to their death. Yeah. Um 
so the king and queen decide they'll try sitting down together. I think I think at one point they tried to get the Joker and the knave to sit down, but they just run off. And <laughs> um, so, the, yeah, they sit down together with each other, and then uh, the chair collapses inwards. So that's the wrong choice. Uh, Stephen sits down in a, in chair number five, and they win. So there's a big bang or whatever, and everything changes, and um, they look back. And there's two playing cards on the floor uh, where the king and queen were. Yeah. Like the previous dolls were. So, uh, yeah, the toy maker calls them and gives them another riddle to find a key. Uh, and the locked cupboard opens. Uh, and this, those three dolls from earlier that they wanted to use follow them. You see, this is the thing which um, I think is a very good example of the potential of the story and the sort of thing that maybe they were wanting to go for but it just doesn't come off that idea that you know because these people that they're coming across they are you know they're they're dolls that become reanimated in this case they're playing cards and i think you know it's very you know it's 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 clear that these were once people like stephen and dodo who were in this realm and they've lost the games and they've become the toy makers play things but when they're reanimated they have free will and uh Stephen and dodo can't trust them because they're trying to get out of the predicament that they are in by by winning there's something really um sweet and also quite creepy about the idea that out of desperation that these two characters uh go all in to try and win the game and they could win it or they could die um so they're you know the, the a little bit of a potential like suicide pact and they lose it and they turn back into cards mm. now that's a strong uh creepy fantasy idea but it doesn't it doesn't really come a, it didn't quite come off no i mean i mean do you agree i mean do you think there is the potential for something much stronger possibly in um the next episode that we're about to talk about does explore the the idea that it doesn't really spell it out, but it's what the audience suspects, and it's perhaps what Dodo thinks that these were in fact real people, mm-hmm. um, which is a bit of a haunting idea that they're kind of on par with um, Stephen and Dodo. They are prisoners here, who mm-hmm. are ma- being played the game, play- being made to play the game, which is quite chilling. Yeah, but then they kind of like they're brought back instantly. So it wasn't like a final end for them. Hmm. Sorry, what was your point though? <laughs> <I> explain? Uh, <laughs> did I have one? I think I finished. No, uh, it's basically the point of there's some really strong ideas here, and there's something about the celestial toy maker where it there's a good story struggling to get out, and there's like a lot of potential here. Yeah, and there's a good uh, psychological aspect here. Where yeah, it would have been interesting if they had explored yeah, that. But it, but it, if it, I'll 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 go into it a little bit later on because the, there was uh, production difficulties with getting the script together, and there were you don't say, yeah, yeah, I know, shock. Um, 
and I, it just emphasizes the fact that you had one writer wanting to push the story in the direction that sort of uh, I'm looking at and going, yeah, it has the potential to to be this other thing, and then you had other people that were just constantly pulling it back, and you're just going, why? You 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 seem to be going out your way to completely weaken this story. But anyway, mm. anyway. <laughs> Um, next episode is one of your favourite, Liam. It's episode yeah. three, The Dancing <laughs> Floor. The toy maker selects Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs to face them. And Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs are, yes, you've guessed it, it's Joey and Clara. It's the King and Queen of Hearts returning. Um, and then they're in this kitchen. And Stephen and Dodo went to the kitchen. And this is their third game that they have to play. So they've, they've been given a riddle. And essentially they have to find a key in this room. Um, this is where Dodo kind of notices and points out to Stephen that these characters are familiar. Or they are in fact the same people that they've been they've been um, playing up against. And I, and I feel like Stephen has kind of not been noticing that. Or rather he doesn't care. Anyway, they they begin to look for this key, but before long it all turns into chaos with um, all the banter and the back and forth between Sergeant Rogue and Mr. Wiggs. Nothing happens, Rob. <laughs> no. Uh, at one point it's just, it just yeah, descends into chaos. And there's, there's food being thrown around and a lot of yeah, jabs it, back and forward. It's largely an episode of 20 minutes of four people smashing up a kitchen. <laughs> And there's no, I mean, am I wrong? It's a pain. I'll, I'll kind of just breeze over the first 20 minutes of this episode and we'll get, to, <laughs> get to the point where they sus- suspect the key may be in the pie. Yeah. The the guy who played the neighbor hearts, Cyril, he was here and it was like a chef or something. He runs off at some point, I think. Or, or kind of backs down and has no part of it. But yeah, um, eventually, I think it's Dodo's like, the pie. It's the only place we haven't looked. So they find this key in the pie. Mm-hmm. So after Stephen and Dodo leave the room, um, I've jumped ahead quite a bit here. Is there anything you want to say about the kitchen scene, Liam, before we move on? <laughs> no. No. The toy may- we have an interesting scene because we were talking about maybe these people are real that are trapped there. So after Stephen and Dodo leave this kitchen we have a scene where the toy maker turns up and he's talking to this Mrs. Wiggs and this Sergeant Riggs, Sergeant Rugg, <laughs> and he's disappointed in them. So I thought that was an interesting interaction for them to put in there. Mm. Do you think that's kind of implying that they are real or is he, is he just gave them life and just expressing his disappointment? I don't know. Mm. Um, so Stephen and Dodo arrive at a dance floor in the next room hey so they see three ballerinas dancing there's some really crap music (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then steven spots a tardis at the opposite end of the dance floor you know steven kind of holds his hand over the dance floor and um it does I guess his hand starts dancing or something. I don't know. But as soon as they're on the dance floor, they can't stop. <laughs> um, Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs also follow them at the dance floor. Stephen gets caught up dancing. Soon everyone's having a dance. 
and a bit of back and forwards with dance partners, Stephen and Dodo reached the TARDIS at the other end of the room. So the kitchen thing, yeah, it was interesting, like a bit of an escape room hunt kind of thing. You're looking for uh, something, you find it. Yeah. The dance floor, however, <laughs> it wasn't very challenging. No, and again, it's sort of like, right, I can see what they're trying to do. So it's this idea, you know, it's a bit, um, a bit Brothers Grimm. It's a bit, you know, the red shoes, this creepy idea of, you know, dancing forever until you're dead type thing. It's just, you know, a strong idea. It's a rec- thing that we probably all recognize. Um, and again, you know, potentially creepy idea and that sense of jeopardy, jeopardy that, that they could be in. But again, there's there's just, they don't seem to be like pushing with these ideas. It's just sort of a series of just point, pointless challenges and i'm putting challenges in quotation marks because that's the thing about these games that there hasn't really been a sense of jeopardy really to be honest i mean we know that something could potentially go wrong and but the closest that any of the characters have gotten to any jeopardy is sitting in sitting in these chairs in the previous episode um and that's largely been it you had a game of blinds blind man's buff yeah it's like there was no danger in this episode yeah, and then you've got, uh, and then you had the the chairs, right? Uh, and then you've got this this dancing floor thing. It, it, it just seems like you come across these characters who are just that they're supposed to pose a threat, but they don't. They come across as irritating more than anything, and they felt like it feels like they're very easily dealt with. Yeah, <laughs> and the other thing as well is that. The cliffhangers to these episodes are really poor. Oh, yeah. And like like I was mentioning, the toy maker came in and he said, you're going to have to up your game here. I'm really disappointed. Mm. They didn't. <laughs> they just came in, had a bit of a dance off. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that's it. And of course, one thing which I'd never appreciated before, which was... When we have episode four, which obviously begins with what would have been the cliffhanger to episode three, which is Cyril coming along and just going, it won't be so easy this time. You see, you be playing against me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you are. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. It's sort of, right, that's, uh, obviously we we were only coming to the, uh, to the story through that episode. And you kind of go, oh, okay. So he's been this, obviously this this ongoing character who's been mischievous and a bit of a threat. And now yeah. they're having to play against this character. Ooh, okay. Mm. But then it suddenly just springs up. He's like, it won't be so easy this time. You say, you'll be playing against me. Sorry, <laughs> just, I love the way he says the line. Um, and the time maker does kind of introduce him a bit to the to the viewers um, because he, he throws the other dolls in the chest frustratedly. Yeah. And he wants this more deadly character. So he was like, I'll get the innocent fat jolly schoolboy. <laughs> yeah but it's just like, it's like oh shit we hate those yeah <laughs> we all hate those all f- ah no um but the but there's no we're only being told that he's uh he's some sort of threat through this through the toy maker we haven't actually seen it and the only instance that we've ever seen of cyril in the previous episode is this character who randomly pops up and what does he and what does he always do rob nothing <laughs> yeah because he no uh, <laughs> The only thing he ever does is run away. I know. So the line of, 
it won't be so easy this time because you'll be playing against me. And just going, he's the worst what? one. Yo, yo, yeah, you haven't been doing anything. You're just constantly popping up and running away. Oh my god, I'm so <laughs> scared. Um, uh, do you think? Um, obviously, it's something that's not even touched upon. But uh, do you think Cyril, in your mind, was taken here as a schoolboy? I think so. Yeah. And you know that's disturbing. I mean, there's something just. Dis- I mean, there's something disturbing about um, a clearly middle-aged guy still pretending to be a schoolboy. I mean, that oh, that is creepy in itself. So you know, that's an idea which is successfully made creepy. I do like the actor who plays the part, though. Oh yeah, he's uh, he great. Does, he does, Yeah, he's great. When he's finally given something to do in the final episode, I yeah. do, you know, think. That's the point where it's just... I think that's the highlight of the story, really. That and Michael Goff's performance. So this takes us into episode four. It's called mm. The Final Test. Yeah. It's available on the Heart Only Years VHS. You can also get it on the Lost in Time DVD set. Mm-hmm. It's not available anywhere else as of yet, I don't believe, Liam, no? Uh, n- no, I don't think it is. So they prepare to play... TARDIS hopscotch and Cyril explains the rules and basically there's these triangular stepping stones that everyone has to hop along, they roll a dice and they move forward and the, the person to the to reach the other end first wins um, there's, there's a very elaborate rotating kind of totem pole thing with uh, which illuminates the results of the dice but it also provides other kind of rules to the game. Instructions, yeah, like move back to space seven, miss a turn, go back to the start. Visually, that was quite good. Um, I'm, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised they made it because they already had Cyril there explaining the rules. I guess it ju- it does show that with regards to those rules, he's not cheating. Yeah, I mean, he actually explains that, and you know, it's just going, um, you know, and that's to make sure no one cheats. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes um, sense. Yeah, which, yeah, that that does make sense. I mean, one thing that uh, I will say about this story, and we can see that in this episode, uh, and also because there's quite a lot of um, publicity photos that were taken. This story had good production values, you know, with the with the set designs and the costumes and everything like that. So it it has a visual appeal to it, which is you know, which is quite striking, and a lot of visual effects as well with the floating hand. Yes, yeah, yeah, and the toy maker presenting himself over a scene and different things yeah yeah well actually because um so the the book that i forgot to get before it's doctor who the handbook and this is the first doctor and um there's a bit here where um the designer of the story john wood was interviewed and this is this is what he said the toy maker's tin plate desk moved along by itself and sparked out at the back just like a friction drive toy I think that was made by Shawcraft. They were originally going to use just an ordinary desk, but I had this one built. The toy maker would sit in his chair and the desk would come in, sparking out the back and place itself in front of him so that he could start writing or whatever. Oh, okay. And Shawcraft are the ones who made the Daleks, yeah? Yeah, yeah. They, they, um, during the Harden and Trouton era, they made, a lot of, um, they made a lot of the props, the models, and yet yeah, they, they also made the Daleks as well. So um, listening to the story and obviously watching this episode because the... the, the the toy maker isn't at a desk you know the, the fact that they made a, a desk to move around like a friction drive toy that's really that's really interesting um i would love to see that so i think there's there's a obviously there's a there's a very strong visual aspect to the story which we're not getting 
with the previous episodes. That isn't to say that it overcomes the faults of the script. But I think um, if we were able to see it, probably it would it would be appreciated somewhat more. Not yeah. least, not least of all with the production uh, aspect of it. But yeah, there's a the fact that they do these things, and as you said, with the uh, the rotating um, dice display thing, it's oh, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's nice. It's good. In fact, if anyone's listening to this on Monday, the day of release, maybe we'll put some pic- some of the set pictures out on Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And for people to have a look at. Because there's a few colour photographs as well. Yes, yes, there is. And of course the the um the costumes are very bright and vivid, which was like a necessity of um black and white shows, wasn't it? To bring out the contrast of black and white. Um to have a like, colourful things yeah yeah and that's a thing that it had to be it had to be carefully there was a very so when you're watching something in monochrome there was a very careful decision made with the um with the colors used so i think most doctor who fans will know this but the, the reason why the 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 original tardis prop was painted a light green was if it had been painted white it would have flared up um so that's you know that's the reason so they yeah, there was a lot of uh, careful consideration made for with the use of colour in the production design, even though it's a black and white image. So the toy maker returns the Doctor's voice at this point, so we get him back for episode four a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Cyril starts to, like, cheat a bit. He scares Dodo with a gorilla mask, mm-hmm. and uh, Stephen leaves his space on the game to kind of check up on her so because he's left his space he had Cyril's like you have to go back to the start but yeah. he, re- he refuses and he's like oh you know what screw this I'm going to go to the end this is when the toy maker appears in front of him stops him and sends him back to the start so th- there's no way they can kind of just walk through this and cheat and Cyril shoots Stephen in the back of the head with his, with his catapult as well so he's a bit of a bastard so <laughs> Um, Cyril pretends to have a cut on his foot or something like that. So um, he's like crying and seems like he's bleeding. So Dodo's a bit concerned. This is her naive compassion coming in here. And she leaves up like Stephen, you know, by this episode, he's getting annoyed with Dodo and so are we. <laughs> he's like, will you listen? Yeah, it's just like, it's just another trick. It's like, you know, it's like no, I'm going to help him. And she and just knows got, hey. this is life or death. Oh, yeah, I know. It's just like, hey, that's red ink. Even he says, yes, of course. It, you're so easy to fool. You are. <laughs> just like, oh, for goodness sake, Dodo, really? By episode four, yeah. in of itself, I mean, taken taken separately, it, it like it never really bothered me. I think it's sort of like this one instance. Um, it never really irritated me, you know. When you're just watching episode four in isolation, and you're just enjoying it in of itself, it never bothered me that you know Dodo does this thing. It seemed you know, fair enough, but in context of the entire story, it is it is it, it, it's it's irritating at this point. Yeah. Uh, one aspect visually of actually watching the episode, we saw Cyril putting powder on one of the steps, mm-hmm. which I don't think was explained in the audio. No, Possibly. it wasn't. No, no. It, and this um, becomes apparent later on because um, after Dodo's 
checked up on Cyril and uh, she gets sent back to the start. Cyril rolls and um, he wins. So he's really gleeful. He's like, hopping to the end. Suddenly he slips on some very slippery powder that he put down earlier on. And um, it's the end of him. He falls to his death and he's just a burnt doll or a burnt corpse or something on the floor. Yes, yeah. So that, yeah, these games are deadly. So Stephen and Dodo, they don't rush to the end. They decide to keep on playing so they roll, move, get back to the TARDIS. Um, which is actually the TARDIS as well at this point. The Doctor is now fully visible because he's on his final move. Mm-hmm. But he decides to go and check on the TARDIS, he says first. And this is where he's reunited with the others. And the Time Maker tells them that they can't win by defeating him. And what he means by that is if they win, defeat the Time Maker, the Time Maker's domain is uh, destroyed. And they'll be destroyed along with it. So it's this no-win scenario here. But the Doctor's got a plan. So back inside the TARDIS, well, before this, actually, the the, the Time Maker speaks to the Doctor and says um, he'll give him the power to corrupt and destroy by serving him. So he's trying to tempt him, but with all the wrong wrong things. So he doesn't know him that well. But yeah, the Doctor laughs and just heads into the TARDIS. Um and re-emerges saying, well, you know, he, he pops back out and he's frustrated. Is that because the TARDIS isn't working? Mm-hmm. Or they can't yeah. leave because they haven't finished the game. That's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. So the Doctor's given an idea by Stephen because Stephen says, well, you know, we can't just talk our way out of it. And the Doctor thinks that's exactly what we can do. So he presets the controls to dematerialize and then he takes to the TARDIS speaker um, to give the commands for the trilogic game for his final move but it has no effect and then he plays the command again in the toy maker's voice which which does have an, have an effect and the toy maker's like no and, well no uh, i mean he doesn't say that but you do have this thing of michael goff uh with this look of horror with his hands uh up against his face and i think the shot just held a little bit too long yeah and then you have all this superimposed explosions and everything going on oh yeah and uh, his domain's destroyed. And the Doctor says, you know, the Time Maker's immortal, so he can never truly be defeated. And um, the, he'll, he'll face him again in another time. Which I think's a good... Um, you know, that... that, that it, it, It's one of those things where, it, you know, it's opening up to the possibility of the character coming back, which is quite appealing. Um, but at the same time, even if he doesn't come back, it's a, it's still a good cliffhanger for the story because it, it, it adds, it just emphasizes the threat of the character that he posed. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's good. I like that. Yeah. And it, it almost works well that, uh, he didn't come back every season. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Become a recurring, um, annoyance. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting that there, there was a decision to bring him back in what would have been the original version of season 23, um, which is when Colin Baker was playing the Doctor. Um, so this was this was the time when uh, the show ended up, you know, there was an attempted cancellation of the show, but 
it was brought back and we get Trial of a Time Lord. To be perfectly honest, um, I don't know what a lot of other fans think. I'm pleased we get Trial of a Time Lord because from what we know of what would have been the original plans for that season, which would have included the story called The Nightmare Fair, written by Graham Williams, and it would have been set on Blackpool Pleasure Beach and the Celestial Toymaker would have come back. Some other stories, uh, ideas as well that we know about. Nothing about those things actually appeal, to be perfectly honest. Right. Did um, Big Finish did that Blackpool story as part of the Lost Stories range? Yes. Was it was yeah. it Michael Garth who played the Time Maker? I don't. Because th- it was because fa- mm. I know that story came uh, no, out fairly recently so. in the last fifteen years or so. Yeah. Um, and I don't know when we lost him. I don't know. No, I don't, I don't think it was Michael Goff who played that no. who played that role. No, yeah. aye. So that kind of wraps up the story, and one of the reasons we're talking about it is because the character could return for the sixtieth. That's something you're intrigued by, or bothered by, or excited by. I'm intrigued and excited by it because I have always liked the character. I may not like the. St- the story as a whole. I do still have a lot of affection and enjoyment with the fourth episode. But, um, I mean, hang on, I've got going back to the Doctor Who handbook, this was um, the script editor, Donald Tosh, being interviewed. Now, the thing is, sometimes, from what I can gather, Donald lived up to his surname and did speak a lot of Tosh. And some people have said that he tried to have credit for stuff he didn't do, but I don't know much about that. So... Some of this may have to be taken with a pinch of salt. but So the story is credited by Brian Hales. And I think he'd attempted to write this story. And apparently, with what he was doing, it really started to creep him out. And he couldn't finish the story. So Donald Tush took over. And this is what he said in this interview. He said, I had in fact written all the episodes of The Celestial Toymaker based on a, diff- on a based on an idea by Brian Hales. But Jerry Davis had a very different view from mine as to how the story should be treated. I saw it as a story full of pure menace. Two people, Stephen and Dodo, caught up in a world of childish games in which everything is at stake. Jerry had a much lighter, more pantomime view of it and rewrote it accordingly. The story was Brian's, the dialogue was Jerry's, the only thing left of mine was the trilogic game, which was ancient Chinese. So I claimed no authorship at all. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's an odd the oddity of the production shows you had one guy brian hales commissioned to write the story made attempts of doing it the script editor then took over the 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 writing of it um to do his own take on it but then was pushed back and then told to go in a completely different direction with it by uh by the producer um and as a result of that you get a very, you know, everything just seems completely diluted. And I think that shows. It's, you know, it's apparent. Even without knowing any of that, I still think you know, our review of the story would, would hold up, which is just sort of like, you've got these really good ideas. But, it you know, the story doesn't really go anywhere. There does, you don't get any sense of the jeopardy that the characters are supposed to be in. The cliffhangers are poor. I think probably what would have been the real selling point of the story would have been the production values. The cast are good. If if the char- if Dodo's not written well, she is performed well. I've got yeah, nothing Yeah, and the, the and the um the supporting cast plays these mm. really diverse different characters really yeah. well. I actually think another aspect of the story which 
we haven't really come we've sort of touched upon actually i think another weakness of the story is the is the lack of william hartnell yeah because it was meant to be this battle of wits with yeah. the doctor's intellectual nemesis when he comes back in episode four just everything the, the quality of it just seems to shoot up william hartnell has his presence in the show is incredibly important when he's not around it and it's not this this isn't the first time this has happened it's um i remember this, there's a story in the first season called the keys of marinus and i think william hartnell's um you know his holiday his first holiday of when making the show falls during that story so there's one episode he's not in possibly two when he does appear in the the final episode you know and that's when you've got a tremendous cast you know you've got Jacqueline Hill who's absolutely fantastic and William Russell so they they do hold the series up but when William Hartnell comes in it's just just everything just it's like suddenly everything just pulls together much more and it lifts the story up he yeah. he's incredibly incredibly important the fact he's hardly in the story as well i think is is a detriment it's also. like he's an integral part of the story and it it doesn't come across as like i'm sure no one thought oh that's a really clever piece of storytelling they've, they've made him mm-hmm. invisible and mute <laughs> but it it doesn't yeah. come across like that it, it reeks of this you can tell what's going on behind the scenes they, they didn't have him <laughs> yes yeah i mean they do manage to work around it a little bit there is some pre-recorded a bit some, of dialogue d- a bit of dialogue and you do ha- they do have another actor standing in for for his one his his one hand when he's playing the yeah. game slightly transparent hand but um yeah it, that's that's another th- that's another uh, mark against the story as as well as well for me mm. um just going back to the doctor who handbook because i thought i thought this was interesting this is their overall comment, the author's overall comment in the story, and he gives the story a score out of 10. So he goes, The, the Celestial Toymaker is one of the most imagine, imaginative and unusual stories presented by Doctor Who during its first three years. Michael Goff is superbly cast as the eponymous Toymaker, and he exudes both charm and menace in equal portions. Mention must also be made of the rest of the cast, who, during the course of the story, plays several characters each. The direction by Bill Sellers, making his only contribution to Doctor Who, is also very assured, creating some highly dramatic moments. The contrast between the childlike games and the menace of the Toymaker's purpose comes over very effectively. 9 out of 10. Wow. Yeah. Wow, just wow. (laughs) Yeah, so I was reading that, I was just like, that's... It, I mean, there's some of the, some of that comment I do agree with. I, you know, describing Michael Goff is superbly cast and exudes both charm and menace in equal portions. I completely agree with that. Um, You've got to take into consideration the parts where this story like epically fails mm. as a story as well. It underperforms. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, massively, um, and. I mean, we're not the only. You, we'll know from some of the uh, listeners' comments that we've got, Rob. We're not the mm. only ones who think that. I haven't read uh, them yet, so I'm curious. But I mean, that's you know, you would read that and go, "Wow, that is a, that's an absolutely 
ringing endorsement of the story. A 9 out of 10, that's a bloody good, respectable score. And I think, you know, if I was... If this was back in the day when I was just aware of the fourth episode and reading that comment, I would just go, oh, wow, the rest of the... You know, because I still, despite all things, I still enjoy that final episode, the final test. Oh, yeah. But the problem is, it's just the the, the preceding three episodes do do nothing for the story. It's such a shame, but... Oh, well, uh, shall we um, look at some feedback now? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's have a look at uh, the old Twitter. So Jason Thompson has said, the basic concept of an immortal who plays games with morals is great. The execution is is just episode after episode of the leads playing games with Dodo repeatedly failing to grasp the situation, a concept that can't sustain four episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Completely. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Completely, completely agree with that. James Swift said, if you really try, it can be all right-ish. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking that. that, that sort of, like, yeah. it's a tough one because this this story is very memorable mm. as one of the season three stories. It, I mean, it is. It it does it does stick in it does stick in the memory. I think if it weren't for episode three, because I think that's the real low point of the story. Maybe you know, if this was a three episode story, for example, everything else was largely the same, but they they took episode three out. Uh, yeah, I'd probably go. You know what? It's all right. It could have been better. Uh, I would still have like largely the same criticisms, but yeah, I think I would largely agree with that. I'd just go. Yeah, it's it's all rightish. Mm. So yeah, I, I do think I agree with that. You know, with the right approach, you could be um, a little bit more charitable to it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But... Um, in reply to what, uh, a poll that we did, um, Mark Cockrum said, "Is there an option worse than bad?" <laughs> Yeah, I know, because um, uh, I really love listening to his podcast, and uh, um, it's been a while since they reviewed the Celestial Toymaker, but I know he's, he really doesn't like the story either. He did say, it has a really imaginative premise built around an interdimensional being with godlike powers that can bend matter to, his, uh, to its will. Hmm. The idea that the Doctor has had a previous encounter with this uh, toy maker is really interesting, but that doesn't really go anywhere. In the end, what we're left with is a series of deathly dull parlor games with absolutely zero jeopardy, which is such a letdown. Even the recent beautiful fan animation can't save this god-awful story. One out of ten. <laughs> Huge contrast to the review I read before. Nine out of ten, one out of ten. Yeah, to be honest, and that's the thing. I did come across some really nice fan animation uh, mm-hmm. on YouTube, uh, which is really well done. Uh, so yeah, th- there has been some nice uh, fan produced stuff, and even the production values of the story itself, as as I mentioned before, with the pu- publicity photographs that that one can see, it looks great. And yeah, I agree with that. There's lots of potential with the ideas here, but it. Yeah, it's just a series of parlor games with no jeopardy at all. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good summing up. Tony Filer said, "Brilliant villain 
with unlimited potential. Story is absolutely surreal and creepy for the character, uh, if a touch slow in its progression. Michael Goff had enormous charisma in the role. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's see what the highly rumored future holds. Yes. And I think that's the I think that's the because I've always had very fond memories of 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 watching the final test um, over the years, and I've always loved the character through how he's. It, it's really Michael Goff's performance, I think, more than anything. There is a charm there, um, but he exudes menace. And just having, and there is there has been the massive potential of doing something with that character. Uh, I mentioned it in, uh, I think I mentioned it in the previous podcast. Um, there was a story with BBC Books called Divided Loyalties with the Fifth Doctor with um, with a Celestial Toymaker brought back. And I always thought that was a good story. Um, so having, I mean, again, it, it hasn't been confirmed. We're just suspecting it's the Celestial Toymaker in the 60th anniversary. If it is, it's just like, yeah, will that potential finally be met? Will we finally have like that fun creepy idea which we could have had back in the back in the 60s yeah i mean need cyril back oh that's the thing yeah we're probably what will happen rob is that we'll review the 60th anniversary and just come but the thing is they didn't have a cyril or or, or maybe we'll get him (laughs) as a schoolboy, and then we'll we'll see him get captured and it all goes full circle yeah yeah could do (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you and I, Rob, we, I think uh, one of our favourite stories is the Patrick Troughton, the mind robber. Yeah, uh, you know what? I've been actually comparing these two stories in my mind this evening. Right. Um, and as bonkers as they both are, with potential for being terrible stories, mm-hmm. um, I, I do enjoy the mind robber. I think it's uh, it's been written with... Um, more sense in mind that's the only word yeah no no i know know what you mean and i really i really like the mind robber it's one of my favorite stories um i haven't watched it in a long time actually though despite that but uh but i i do really like it and there's something about if it's it's just a much better written story is as as well as yeah even though it's a mashup of a lot of nonsense it yeah, it, but all, it, 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 it all makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it somehow seems to cohere, and yeah, it makes sense, and it is an awful lot of fun. There's something about the Celestial Toymaker. It could have been a very su- successful precursor to that type of story. Yeah, perhaps. But sadly, it's not. We had. I'll. I'll before I get to the main poll results, we we did a poll on Patreon, and the patrons said it was good. Oh, so, interesting. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and and on Patreon, Grant had commented commented to say. The audio recording makes it sound like fun. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, sorry. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't mean to come across as disparaging. Oh, just a general arse. No, it's 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 interesting. Obviously, you know, uh, we can be listening to exactly the same thing and just have a completely yeah. different um, take on it. Uh, Grant actually retweeted and reposted our last episode. Um, it's very nice. He said uh, another great episode from the chaps. There's a very interesting debate at the end around <laughs> multiple TARDISes, which I may or may not have started. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chris. This was about the whole TARDISes inside TARDISes thing. And yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It got me confused. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
we've got to check out our new threads. So there's a new platform called Threads. Um, oh, are we on, on that? We're, 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 we're big on Threads, Liam. Right. Okay. We're, we're, we're one of the uh, popular boys. So on uh, on Threads, um, who we had, we've had Jeff uh, Gallifrey Goth- Gothic. Um, we know him from Twitter. Uh, he's on there. He said, uh, when we reviewed this with um, All of Time and Space, I gave it the highest score of 5 out of 10. And I think that was probably me being kind. It's meh. <laughs> I miss that word, meh. meh. It used to be brought back into... Uh, yeah. yeah. I seen it on a t-shirt once. Meh, full stop. I thought, that's, that's <laughs> brilliant. Let's see if we got any other responses. Yeah, we've had Ian from uh, All Time Space. The Nadia of the Hartnell era. What does that mean? Low point. All right, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and we've had Pulled Open Podcast. Much better than it has a right to be, given the threadbare budget and general lameness of the games themselves. <laughs> the implied history between the Toy Maker and the Doctor is pretty great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there was a lot of mystery behind the Doctor back then. I think that's um, pretty much it for our feedback this week. More than usual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So should we, what do you think, how do you think the poll did? Did the poll. The patrons thought it was great, but did uh, did the general public? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the elite thought it was good. It's very close, Liam. Good average and bad is very close. Okay. You got any guesses? Hey, what's the what, what, what do you think is the lowest percentage? Of those two? Of good, average, or bad? Which I think one good's have? probably the lowest. No, average is the lowest. Oh, is oh it's right, okay. 20, 29%. Right. So we have good and bad. One has 38%, one has 33%. Wow, that is close. And it was good. Really? Okay. It was. <laughs> right. I thought it would have been the other way around. But okay, fair enough. But that is, I mean, that is very, that's very close. Very mixed opinions, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Democracy wins. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there you go. It's It's officially good. Although I disagree, but... Uh, no, just that you're all wrong. Yeah, they're all wrong. So, um, how would you rate it? Bad. Just bad. Not average? Uh, yeah, I'm afraid to. I mean, it's a thing. That there is a. It's funny, despite all the criticisms which I've leveled at the story, <laughs> it feels like I've said that there's a, there's a lot. It does feel, I don't know, somewhat harsh. But the thing is, it's just I don't think it's average. See, it's it's obviously it's a it's a bit of everything. There's obviously the, there is good aspects to it, mm-hmm. like the acting, the yes. potential, and certain things. Yeah, but it just doesn't work. Yeah, it, yeah, that's the thing. It just yeah, it just it just doesn't work. It's a fundamentally flawed story. Mm. I guess yeah, it's bad. <laughs> just bad. Yeah. Um. So, where are we going next, Liam? Next week, we'll be looking at a uh, our final Season 18 Big Finish story, uh, which is a bit different to the ones that we've been looking at. 
I was going to say recently, over the last year. Um, this one, it's called The Watchers, and it is uh, written by Matthew Waterhouse, and he and he narrates it. Okay. Uh, from what I can gather, the Daleks are going to be in this story because Nicholas Briggs comes along and does voices because, of course, he has to. God's sake. Oh, yeah. Um, God's but... sakes. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we need to get him on here just to make it awkward for you. <laughs> Why would it be awkward? I could make it awkward for him. Let's see how he responds to... Look, Nick. <laughs> You're good and everything, but back off on the Dalek voices. Give someone else a go. Or just because a Dalek's written in the story doesn't mean that you have to constantly shoehorn yourself in to do the bloody voices. Hey, I'll send him a message. He always does does reply, so yeah. Oh, does it, Rock? On socials, so... (laughs) Well, snip out that bit of the podcast and chuck it in his direction. Just go, wow, we've got a Doctor Who fan who's a bit of a knob. Who'd have thought it? (laughs) But, um, yeah... So the watchers, have you listened to it yet, Liam? No, no, not yet. Do you know how long it is? No, I haven't actually checked. Oh, it's oh. over seven hours. Shit, is it? Yeah. Oh my god! I only. What have you gonna... done? Please tell. Oh god! Hang on. Tell... <laughs> oh, god. I thought it was a couple. I thought it was just going to be like an hour Let's and a pull... half or something. <laughs> oh my god! Hang on. This may be the biggest story we've ever titled. It's longer than Master Plan. I want to die. But we can't even take take a week off. We've, we've, we're on a schedule here. Oh. <laughs> Stop it, Chuck. Oh, God. Why did I do Why? Look, Rob, from this day forward, any fantastic ideas that I'm supposed to have for the podcast, just tell me. For the love of God, Liam, we are not doing it. Seven hours of Matthew Waterhouse narrating a story. <laughs> with, with, with a bit of Briggs. Yeah, but, yeah, we'll probably be going, thank God, Briggs is doing the Dalek voices. <sighs> right. I do have a life, Liam. When am I meant to listen to this? No, you don't, Rob. Don't lie. You I do. I've got Warhammer thing. and Friends. No, I haven't got any of that. Oh, oh. <laughs> Right, okay. Well, let's quickly wrap up this podcast so we can get the work to the watchers. We look, we've got seven days, Rob, to do it. An hour, One hour, hour, a, an day. hour a day. That's hour a lot of time. That is a lot of time. Uh, and in in that amount of time, I'm going to have to also edit this episode, and I'm also going to have to prep for the week, week after, because I'm going to give you my research material the week before. I should be prepping for that. <laughs> I've got a busy week ahead. Oh, no. Seven hours of a big finish story. Oh, God. Well... <laughs> let's advertise it to the listeners as an exclusive it's going to be a one-off will we be here next monday hopefully i've no idea (laughs) will we have lost the will to live by the time we come to the next podcast well tune in listeners to find out so thank you to all the listeners you're all great 
thanks to the patrons, Harry Mark, Sonia and Grant. Um, thank you, Liam. What for? What are you thanking me for? <laughs> You're very welcome, Rob. <laughs> Not at all. The TARDIS cloister bell. Imminent disaster. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.